what we're being, being is, or that we are being fed, we come to a position in our lives of doubt. And when you and I are in a position of doubt, doubt is not exactly the same thing as unbelief. Uh, doubt is other, not being sure of actually where you stand. And when how that happens in your life, you and I become frozen. That you and I, we're not sure if we should stand on this truth or this truth. And what winds up happening is we become undecisive. And so much of our anxiety and angst in this world comes from our undecisiveness, from our doubt. And you know what I've learned as I've followed the Lord time and time again is that confidence comes from conviction. Let me hear you say that again. Confidence comes from conviction. So during the summer, we are looking at our doctrinal statement, which is a rock-solid list of convictions that we as a church have about various issues from the Word of God. Now, let me, uh, so we've been going through that, and we've been learning through uh, what exactly uh, our best understanding of uh, the different things is, is in the Word of God. And uh, you might be saying to me this morning, well... Why would I look at Manner's doctrinal statement for conviction on what's real? Why don't I just go to the Bible yourself? And you would be absolutely right. And my answer to this is, is very simple, is, is that our doctrinal descent, uh, statement does not define what the Bible says. Our Bible defines our doctrinal statement. Amen. The Bible indicates what we believe and what we don't. And so our doctrinal statement is not a list of convictions that we are superimposing on the Bible. What it is, is it's our best understanding on what the Bible says about certain subjects. So you, I, want to tell, I, want to, I want to talk about that before we get into the message today, because some of you might be actually wondering, are we talking about something that has authority over the Bible? And that's not true. Rather, everything you're reading, everything that we've been going through, someone or a committee of people has spent a long time researching and, and looking at the Word and coming up with a clear and concise way to encapsulate the entire Bible's thought on different subjects. So listen, the, the, I want you to understand that doctrinal statements are not infallible, they're, they're not inerrant, but they are tools. And they are great tools that help us in the church. And I just want to give... Five real quick reasons that doctrinal statements can help you. Number one, it sums up the whole total of the Word of God. Okay? When you and I come to a subject, any topic in the Bible, topical preaching is actually very hard for me because it's easy to cherry pick. It's easy to say, well, I'm going to go to this verse and this verse and this verse about this certain topic but neglect this. Doctrinal statements tend to be uh, documents that it can look throughout the entire Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation to capture the entire Bible's thought on one subject. Number two, it assumes the unity in the Bible. Okay? Some people don't trust the Bible because there are contradicting statements. For example, Ephesians will tell you to honor, that children are honor your parents, but Jesus actually says, I tell you the truth, unless you hate your, your mother and father, you are not welcome in the kingdom of God. So what do you do there? Is, 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 it two, is it two contradictory statements, or is it a unified word of God? A doctrinal statement will 
assume that. Number three, it will check our assumptions about what we actually think and believe is in the Bible versus what it actually is. Number four, it allows us to find references to our theological topics very fast. And number five, and this is probably my, my biggest reason that I like doctor statements, it prevents the church from getting stuck. And a number of years ago, I had a number of interns that came through my church as a youth pastor, and every once in a while an intern would make the claim that Adam and Eve were figurative. And since the church had no doctrinal statement in that, what wound up happening is every time the intern would come up and preach and give the word of God and say that, the church would have to go back and research it time and time again. And for five years, the church got stuck on the issue of whether or not Adam and Eve were real people. And the problem with that is, is that sometimes we get stuck on the theological issues so much so that we are spinning our wheels. We shouldn't have to bring up an issue every time that someone brings up, a, we, shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to get stuck and focus so much time on whenever, whenever, whenever someone pushes us on the issue of marriage or who Jesus is or what the heaven and hell is like. Because what winds up happening is we get so consumed with those arguments that we do not press forward with the good news of Jesus Christ. And if you want a good example of that, I would invite you to look at what happened with the Anglican Church in regards to gender and marriage. They wound up debating that issue for 15 years. 15 years of going back and forth about this and that and the next thing. All the while, there are people hurting, walking in their doors that they're missing because of that. Doctrinal statements help us make sure that we fulfill our mission as a church to proclaim the good news by actually just being decisive about what we believe and move on. So that's, those are a few reasons just off the top of my head. They are tools. They are not necessarily inerrant or infallible. I just need you to know that, okay? So going forward, we've been going through the church's doctrinal statement, and today we are looking at this one today, and I would like you to read it aloud with me, okay? Number one, or one, two, three. We believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is received by faith and obedience, and that sanctification is progressive as well as instantaneous, producing daily growth in grace following the one experience of the Alright, that is a mouthful. And what is that talking about? Well, it's actually talking about two issues that are very much separate, but they are related. The first one is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And what exactly we believe about whether or not believers have the Holy Spirit or not have the Holy Spirit. And the second is sanctification. Now you might be going, if you're new here and you don't have heard that word before, you may be going, sanctify what? That doesn't make any sense. Well, put simply, sanctification is a big, uh, big technical word for the process of becoming more holy. Sanctification is the process in which God conforms us more to his character than we originally were at the moment we believed. In short, it's the term giving for living in a way that pleases God. Do you understand that? There's the Holy Spirit, and then there's sanctification, and those are two related 
that's separate and wildly big issues to talk about. So because they are big issues, I've decided to, uh, I've decided that I will tackle this statement in two messages. And the first part that we're going to talk about today is this one. We believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is received by obedience. We're going to spend uh, some time there today because I think that is important. And the question that I think I really want us to walk away with this morning as we talk about the Holy Spirit is this one. If I've got Jesus, why do I need the Holy Spirit anyway? Okay. I'm going to get to that, but uh, I know that, I think I need to address a little bit of an elephant in the room here, and I know that when some of you hear the term Holy Spirit, you are automatically worried that I'm going to get wildly charismatic on you. Okay? For the record, I've been your pastor for three years, and this is about as charismatic as you're going to get. Okay? On the other hand, there are some of you that might take the extreme version that I'm going to be super conservative and never acknowledge the Holy Spirit in the first place, either in word or deed. And if you are in either one of those uh, camps, uh, I, I, I want to I wanna put your mind at ease by saying I understand your worry and frustration. I have been the victim of abuse on both sides of those, of those pendulums, right? I used to grow up in a church that was extremely conservative and was almost Jehovah's Witness-like in their attitude towards the Holy Spirit. And then on the other hand, I've been, I've been, uh, I've been hurt and wounded by, the, by extreme charismaticism. In fact, one day, I'll tell you the story real quick. I had friends uh, that were, I had friends in the Lord who were overly charismatic and they invited me to a charismatic service when I was... 16, my parents let me go, and it was one of the weird ones, when people are slain in the spirit, you know, have you seen that? Like, people like, shh, Holy Spirit comes upon them, and they like, it was weird, okay? So here I am, and I'm in the church service, right, and people are leaving worship, and there's a guy praying for people, and as he's praying, everyone is kind of falling down. So, I'm going to lay my hands on him, boom, 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 and then he gets to me, right, and he starts praying over me, and I don't have no idea what to do, Right? So, I'm just like, okay, God, whatever you have for me, and then what he winds up doing is he winds up jamming his fist right in here as hard as he physically can. Like, I'm just like, ah! And it's like he was trying to force me to fall down. And when I didn't, he had the audacity to tell me that I was not a Christian. <laughs> Broke my heart. Right. So, I understand very much so the worry that comes with this topic, and I understand too that it is easy, it's easier not to raise the issue than, than to talk about it for fear of abuse either way about that, and I, I totally understand, but I need you to understand something very clearly. This whole time I've been going through the doctrinal statement, I need you to understand that every single one of the issues that we're talking about, whether it's the Bible, Jesus himself, heaven and hell, are being severely challenged in evangelical churches today. Not mainline churches, not, <clears throat> not Catholicism, evangelical churches. And here's what I need you to understand very, very, very clearly. I said this last week. What is not explained or defined, defended in one generation is forgotten and denied in the next. 
I need you to hear that very clearly. What is not explained or defended in one generation is forgotten and denied in the next. That's why we've been going over the doctrinal statements. The first generation assumes it's true. The second generation questions if it's true. And the third generation denies it entirely. And I believe that most Christians in the Christian culture today are somewhere between questioning and denying it today. <clears throat> and is that, I believe that is true over all the issues that Christians are currently arguing about today. What is not talked about in one generation is questioned and denied in the next. So we have a whole generation of evangelicals, of, of people that grow up in churches like Manor, that are questioning if Jesus really died on the cross, questioning whether or not the Bible is true, questioning not whether hell, heaven or hell is true. Am I not? Am I not true? Am I not? Am I not right on that? You probably had discussions or with other Christians that are questioning those things right now, and yet they've grown up in the church and they've gone to Sunday school and they've heard the sermons time and time and time again. Why isn't this something that is solidified? Because we don't talk about it. We assume that it's true and move on. And we have generationally need to keep revisiting the basic truths over and over and over again. So today I want to talk about one that I feel is neglected because I believe that the Holy Spirit, out of all the members of the Trinity, is the most ignored person in the Trinity. And most believers have a theological black hole in their understanding of the Holy Spirit. And some of you don't even know what I'm talking about when I am talking about the Holy Spirit. So let me just address that group first. Those of you who have no idea what I meant when I'm talking about what I'm talking about when I'm in the Holy Spirit. So for that, I want to give three points about the Holy Spirit, and then I want to talk about why you need Him. So number one, I'd love you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. And uh, if you want to keep your thumb in the text of John 20, you can also just read on screen. This, uh, by the way, we're going to be, I think we're going to be starting a series of Ephesians in the fall. So this falls right into it. That'll be really good. Ephesians 4, 25 says this. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, and give no opportunity for the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone who has a need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as what is good for building people up, as fits the occasion, that it might give them grace for those who hear and do not, what? Grieve the Holy Spirit, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with malice. This is the reading of God's Word. I want to focus in on that one phrase there, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. So what Ephesians 4 is, is it's a list of things that the believer is to do, and, and in a way to behave in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit, and from this, I want you to learn three things just by that one phrase of the Holy Spirit. Number one, 
the Holy Spirit is deeply involved in our lives. This is a list of things that the Holy Spirit would like you and I to work on our lives and will help us. Number two, it is possible to disappoint the Holy Spirit. Number three, and this is probably the biggest one that I want to hit home to you today, is that the Holy Spirit is a real person, not some far force from the Star Wars movies. Okay? This is later refer, uh, reaffirmed in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, where you have Ananias and Spire, these two people in church who, uh, who lied to the church about being self-sacrificing, and when they were called on it, it says, you have not lied to us, but you have lied to the who? Holy Spirit. And then Jesus, further on himself, goes on talking about the idea that you can sin against the Holy Spirit. So we know and believe here that the Holy Spirit was, is, and will be a sentient person. Okay? And you might be saying, like, Doc, Pastor Dan, I know that. You're wasting my, why are you wasting my time with that? I know that. And here's why I think it is important for you and I to understand this very simple truth. I think that intellectually, most of us would agree that the Holy Spirit is a person. But when we go about our day-to-days, when you leave here and you go for your lunches, and you spend time with your family, and you go back to your jobs or school or chores, you might intellectually believe, or, sorry, believe Bible about the Holy Spirit on being a person, but in your day-to-day activities, you act like a Jehovah's Witness. Do you know what the Jehovah's Witnesses believe about the Holy Spirit? No. Does anyone want to take a guess? They believe that he is some sort of mystical force. That he is just a tool to be used, that he is not a person, but we know He's a real person, and he's not to be used as some sort of tool like a hammer, or a combine, or a car, or a computer. The Holy Spirit is not a force, it's a person. Do you act as if that's true? Do you? Well, how would you know that? Well, you know what, I would probably make a list of all the things that you would do and say if the Holy Spirit was just some force, and then compare it and make a list of all the things you would do if the Holy Spirit was a person, and just ask yourself very clearly, which one do my day-to-day reflections look like? If I believe that the Holy Spirit was just a force, I would treat him like a tool. I would not interact with him, I would speak with him as if he's not in the room. I would not treat him with respect or that he is a sentient person. But if he is a person, I talk to him. And not only that, because he is a part of the Trinity, I would respect him as such. The manner we believe that the Holy Spirit is a sentient being in a third member of the Trinity and thus fully God. Because he's the third member of the Trinity, he shares everything related to God's attributes and character. He's always all-knowing, he's all-presence, he's good, he's kind, and he is not to be treated inferior to Jesus or the Father. And his role, and I want you to hear this very clear, the whole purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make the active presence of God on earth tangible. Okay? 
His role and work is to manifest and, and activate the presence of Jesus in your life on earth. Do you treat the Holy Spirit as such? Do you treat Him that way? Secondly, I want you to know that the Holy Spirit was there since the start. If you want really a good explanation of the Holy Spirit, you've got to start at the very beginning, which is actually in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It says this, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the what? Spirit was God, of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So here what you have is you have, you have the very first description of what happens on the earth, or sorry, in the universe. Is that there's God and there's nothing. And in the verse 1, God creates everything. He creates the heavens and the earth. Every electron, every photon, the laws of physics, everything. Black holes, nebulas, and everything in the heavens. And he creates the earth right there in verse 1. Boom. Okay? And then in verse 2, we are told that, told that the earth was without form and void, and that darkness was over the face of the deep. So what we know is that we talked about this when we went through Genesis, is that um, is that word there that talks about it being with form, without form and void means that it was a barren wasteland. So it looks something closer to maybe Mars or Mercury or Venus than what it does today. But we know it was dark, and we think it's damp. Why is that? Because we would know that there, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And right there you have the first indication of the Holy Spirit. That word there that, that describes uh, the Spirit of God is the Hebrew word. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I spent all night trying to memorize, memorize how to pronounce that. Ruach. Okay. Look, say it with me. Ruach. You, you, gotta say, you gotta say it like you're getting a COVID test, right? Ruach. Right? And it's the Hebrew word for energy. And when we apply it to the term, when it's used to describe God, it is the term used to describe God's personal presence. And just like the wind that we breathe are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all life. It was the spirit of the God that created the world. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see that God's Ruach, God's Spirit, gives special empowerment for specific tasks. And the first person that we see that happens to is Joseph. So, if you remember the story of Joseph, Joseph is, uh, Joseph is a follower of God. He gets thrown in prison. Pharaoh has some dreams that he can't interpret. And then he goes, and then he finds out that Joseph can interpret it. Joseph goes to God and asks, for the interpretation of the dreams. And we learn in verse 38, it says this, And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, a man who has the Spirit of God? And then later, we see that this, a similar thing happens to a guy named Bastille. I'm pronouncing that wrong, probably. And he's an artist. And God gives him and empowers him with wisdom and skills He's given creative genius to make things beautiful in the tabernacle, as you can read about in Exodus 31. And, we, and further on, as we go further, we see that God's ruach, his power, empowers a group, group of people called the prophets. And they're able to see what's happening in history 
from God's point of view? Well, centuries passed, and then we get to Jesus. And there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the river of Jordan. And the skies open up, and John declares that the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus in the form of a bird. The story is saying that God's Spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. In all of this, we see this happening when he heals people or forgives people for their sins. He's creating life where there was once death, just like he did at the beginning when his Spirit was hovering over the waters. Now, Israel's religious leaders opposed Jesus, and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's Spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus saw him alive from the dead and said that it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Romans 8, verses 11. If the spirit of whom who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Amen. Amen. So that is sort of this, just this basic understanding of the Holy Spirit. Now, I could spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about it, but i got 15 minutes left. Okay, and I need to stop. I need to stop and I need to put a pin in that for a minute. Because if you are new here and you're wondering what the core thing is that we believe as Christians, I would say to you that the core thing that we believe as Christians is that Jesus died for our sins. That's what makes us Christian. Let me explain this real quick. Since we believe that God created the world good and amazing and perfect, and he created human beings to be good, that, that originally our natures were good, that the world was good, it was perfect without evil and sin, and then we broke it. Okay? And since, and since that time, since Adam and Eve, every human being born was born hardwired to practice sin and has a deep craving rooted in the very fiber of who they are to live contrary to God. It is in our nature not to believe in God. Every human being that has ever conceived was born spiritually separated from God, but physically alive because of his sinful nature. And because of that, we do a whole bunch of really bad things. And because, because of we... We have sinned against God and each other. We owe God a debt for all the stuff that we messed up. Okay? The issue is, is that we can't pay God back for that because the price to be paid for everything that we did wrong is debt. Okay? So, this is where Jesus enters in. We believe that Jesus was and is a real person who walked this face, the face of the earth 2,000 years ago. He was not the product of someone's imagination. He actually did walk and live on this planet. Jesus is the second member of the Trinity, and he was both fully human in every sense of that and fully God at the same time. Wrap your head around that. Jesus pre-existed before life on earth. And we know that Jesus was physically born of a virgin. He ate, he slept, he taught, and he served those that he created. All the fullness of God lives in Jesus. But by God's foreknowledge and set purpose, 
He was arrested shortly after the Passover meal. He was betrayed by Judas, one of his twelve disciples. The other eleven, promising never to leave, fled after the arrest. Jesus was mocked, beaten, and tried before Pontius Pilate, and he was put to death by crucifixion by two thieves. And just as Jesus foretold, three days later, he rose from the dead, and he appeared first to the women who came to give him a proper burial, but then to the disciples. After that, Jesus' uh, resurrection would cause a greater stir among the people than his ministry. And Jesus stayed on the earth for a period of 40 days, and it was during that time that those who were raised from the dead came to life. You can read about that in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus died. Now, here's, here's what I want you to catch. The whole reason Jesus died is he died as a substitute for you. He died as a righteous, uh, a righteous substitute against the wrath of God for the sin of the entire human race. Jesus took her place and endured the punishment that humans deserve for their sin. Now, if you don't understand that, let me explain it. Let me try to illustrate it in a different way. The gospel and Jesus is like a prairie grass fire. Okay? Let me explain what that means. Okay? Like, some of you like, I have no idea what that means. I used to, I used to work for the county, uh, Eagle County, and I would do the tarring on the roads, right? So I'd come with a big like tar thing and the blow, they blow the, the big furnace thing, the big tiger torch, right? And uh, it was my job to clean it off every day, and I almost started, I almost lit a farmer's field on fire <laughs> because I put it over by the ditch and I ignited it by the grass, and then all of a sudden the grass went like this, and I'm like, oh man, I'm in trouble. And there's like a split, split seven second decision where I go, do I watch this burn? Or do I stamp out the fire, right? Took me like all four seconds to do it. But the point is, is that because that grass was dry, and uh, it caught on fire really, 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 really fast. And that is kind of like the gospel. Uh, the prairie fire is the kind of fire that stirs and spreads really fast because the wind catches the fire and moves it very quickly because of the wind stir it up. And it goes so quickly that if you saw the fire coming, and you started the run, you would most likely be overtaken by the fire. Okay? And that is, you'd be burned in the grass fire. It was just that deadly. Okay? But there was something you could do to protect yourself if you were ever caught in the grass fire and you saw it coming from a distance. What you could have done is you could have burned out a section of grass, a large section in a circular fashion, all around you, so when the grass was so that all the grass was burned around you, and so when the grass fire actually came, it would actually sweep over top of you as you stood in the place where the fire had once already burned. And that is a great illustration of the gospel. You see, here's the truth about the cross of Jesus Christ: like a prairie grass fire, the only place where you will find safety is in the place where the fire of God's wrath is already burned on the cross. It's the cross of Jesus in dying. Okay. That's the core thing that makes us Christians. So now going back to the Holy Spirit. If that's the core thing of why we believe, 
If it's about believing that, that what Jesus did was enough, that he was a substitute. If it's all about the risen, risen Jesus, why didn't he just stay? I mean, if he was physically around you, and he was physically walking this earth today, maybe you would know him better than you would today. Hey, if you have Jesus, and so it brings up this very pointed question that I think you and I really need to spend time wrestling with as believers, and that's this. If I have Jesus, why do I need the Holy Spirit at all? And the answer is this, and I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to explain the reason. Is that the reason that you and I need the Holy Spirit is because Jesus said it would be bad. Let me repeat that again. The reason that you need the Holy Spirit if you have Jesus is because Jesus said it would be better. Turn with me to John chapter 20, verse 11. For a little bit of context, Jesus has just risen from the dead, and Mary and the other women have come, and they've, they've gone to the tent, they've gone to Jesus' tomb to prepare the body and preserve it, and they've noticed that the stone has rolled away, and that Jesus' body is gone. And this is what it says in verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as, she, and as she wept, she stooped to look in the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Why, why are you still seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, that's funny, isn't it? She said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell him where you have laid him. And I will take him away. And then Jesus said to her, Mary. I guess you would have to read that in a way that would make Mary recognize that it was Jesus. Because the next thing that happened was, is that she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Which means teacher. Jesus said to her, and I want you to highlight this for a second. Do not cling to me, for I have not ascended to the Father. But go to your brothers and say to them, I am ascending him my father and uh, to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord, and that he said the, these things to her. On the, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he had showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And then Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he had breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. I'm oh, sorry, that's the next person. Let me, let me pause Point and, and talk about this for a minute. Jesus' very last act on earth is also one of the most puzzling because he ascends to the ascended right hand of the Father. On the surface, 
the ascension appears to show us, show Christ leaving our world. But if you view the ascension resulting in less of Jesus' presence instead of more, then we are missing out on a powerful truth about the ascended Jesus. When Jesus encounters Mary after his resurrection, she throws his, her arms around him. She had lost him, and he would she would never let him go again. You can understand that, couldn't you? Which makes Jesus' words to her all the more perplexing. Don't, do not touch me or do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. One could assume that Jesus is saying this because the resurrected body is sacred, but later he invites Thomas to touch his wounds, so that can't be the case. Jesus knew the fear that Mary felt, thinking he, she had lost him forever. So his reply is, is actually saying this, Mary, if you let me ascend, you'll have an even stronger connection to me if you let me ascend to the Father. How do I know that? It's because Jesus said that. John chapter 16, verse 7. As Jesus was talking right before his disciples, on the night he was betrayed, he talks to the disciples and says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your what? Advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. The reason that you need the Holy Spirit if you have Jesus is because Jesus said it's to your advantage. It's better. The implication here is that the disciples could not and truly know Jesus until he went away and returned with the Holy Spirit. Now here's the part that the preaches. That is so encouraging for you and us today. Because you might be here, and you might be under the impression that if only you had lived, you could have lived and walked in the time of Jesus, then maybe you would know Jesus better than you do today. I don't know if you've ever thought that, but some days I would be like, man, if I could just physically be with him, if I could walk the streets that Jesus walked, if I could be there 2,000 years ago, then maybe my relationship with Jesus would be stronger. Maybe I would know him better. But... Here's the truth about the Holy Spirit that speaks to you and I about this. If that's the way you think, you'd be wrong. Before Jesus died, the Holy Spirit had not been raised into the uh, had not been raised in this world into this into this powerful way. And you can only know Jesus fully through the Holy Spirit's influence in your life as He shows you the shadow of the cross about how high and how long and how deep His love for it is for you. The role of the Holy Spirit is actually to bring you to Jesus, to convict you of sin, to, and to invite you to know Jesus. In other words, the Holy Spirit lets you see Christ and know His presence and His love better than if you lived during the time of Jesus. Jesus is more accessible now to you than he was when he walked the face of the earth. Isn't that good? Amen. I don't think some of you believe that. Amen. Listen very carefully to this. Jesus, we believe, is fully God in every sense of that word, and fully human. Which means he had human limitations. He ate, he slept, he got tired, 
He didn't have time for everybody. In fact, if you read the Gospel accounts, there's this occasion where he's ministering to people and Jesus' own family can't get near him. Jesus physically could not be around everybody who wanted to be him. But you can. Why do you need the Holy Spirit? Because you and I can see and know Christ now better than the Holy Spirit has come. His role in your life and in my life is to display, show, and demonstrate the active presence of Jesus on earth. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit's role in our life is to display, show, and demonstrate the active presence of Jesus in every life. How does he do that? How does he make our lives better? How is it better? Well, I want to go through this really quickly. Uh, and then, um, not, not because it's not important, because I want to respect your time. When the Holy Spirit enters into the life of the believer, he does a few things. He, he gives life to the individual. God's view of man does not stay as an enemy. Scripture makes it clear that it says that when the Holy Spirit enters our life. The old is gone and the new has come. You are no longer a product of your mistakes, a product of your failures, a product of all the hurts that you are. You are a new creation. Man, man, you and I, men and women, when we believe in Jesus, are transformed into a new creation. At that moment, the Holy Spirit enters into our life and we are now considered God's child instead of God's enemy. We are considered his friend, and he is forgiven, and you've been made complete in Christ, because now you have the Holy Spirit, you have God living in your soul, and God sees and defines you by the fact that he, Jesus is in your heart. Okay. He empowers and gives life to us by convicting us of sin and leading us to the righteousness that is found in Jesus. He empowers you. So in other words, here, here's, here's the deal. Everything that God is asking you to do, you can do. Okay? If God brings you to it, He can bring you through it. Amen. He gives you the power to live holy. He gives you the power not only to live holy, He gives you the power to want to live holy. That there's something that happens in your life where you say, man, I don't like these things. I don't like being humble or, you know, not Mr. Nice Person or whatever. And then there's something that happens where the Holy Spirit comes inside you and you desire the things of God. Okay? He empowers you. He brings revelation of God's truth to the individual. The Holy Spirit helps believers love God by encouraging and prompting us into our holiness. The Holy Spirit teaches us things that are related to God's heart. He guides and directs those who love Him. And most importantly, and I love this one, He is the assurance to believers that you are saved. It says you are marked with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. God's Holy Spirit living in you is sort of like a, I've said this before, it's, it's like a down payment on your mortgage. What do I mean by that? Well, when you buy a house, you uh, make, what you do is you don't, most of us can't afford like, the entire price of a house right up front. So we take out a loan. And so what winds up happening is you and I make a down payment of like 10% or 20%. I, I, I don't know what it means to me. I should. I bought a house. Anyway. <laughs> anyway. 
What is a down payment? It, it is a guarantee, a, a promise that you are going to pay the rest back somehow. Right? And that's what the Holy Spirit is for you and me. It's God's guarantee. You are marked with a seal. His promised Holy Spirit. That He gives you the Holy Spirit. And he's going to say this. He's going to say, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit and what, what I am doing in you, I, this is a promise that when you die, whenever you, I'm going to give you the fullness of God. I'm going to make you whole again. Right? He's received, he gives assurance to believers. You want to know how you're saved? You are marked with the Holy Spirit. And you know what is so cool about this? And I, this goes all the way back to our doctrinal statement on this. You know what is so cool about this? There are no, there's no need for super Christians. This is not a two-tier thing where there are some Christians that have access to this life and there are some Christians that don't. We believe that you don't need to pay any extra for this. All this is made fully available to you at the moment you trust Jesus. That's why we say in our doctrinal statement, we believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit is a part of you and received at the moment of faith and obedience. Okay? And what do I mean by that? It means this, is that when you come to a place in your life where you have such a strong conviction that what Jesus did on the cross was enough, that you are willing to submit your lives to it, you are then saved and converted in the faith. At that mad moment, you are baptized into the Holy Spirit. A phrase scripture uses no less than seven times. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is the term the Bible gives in the event in which God indwells in the life of the believer. And that happens when you trust Jesus, that's the faith part, so much so that you're willing to obey Jesus. Okay. Don't believe me, listen to Romans... I don't know if I have this on the screen. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verses 7 to 11. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to but if Christ is in you, that is who you believe, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of the righteousness. If the Spirit of whom raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, you are raised in Jesus Christ from the dead, and he will give you life to his mortal bodies. The Holy Spirit is available to you. Every believer has access to everything that I have described at the moment you, you give your life to Jesus. Even though the Holy Spirit dwells in every believer, I, I want to end with this, that there's a caveat here. It is possible for believers to make decisions in their life as if they're not led by the Spirit. Is that not true? Amen. Right. Even though the Spirit dwells in every believer, every believer must regularly ask God to fill them with the power of the Holy Spirit because we have chosen to sin. This does not mean that the Spirit has left us, or that He comes and goes. God's Spirit still remains. It only means that the person is not living in submission to the Holy Spirit, to God. 
and thus cannot claim that their lives are filled or only being led by the Holy Spirit. So it is important, even though that you and I, all God's presence is always in our lives, you and I need to understand that we have a decision and choice every day to live by the spirit of the flesh or the spirit of death. At the closing, why do we need the Spirit of Jesus or the Holy Spirit? It's simply this. Christ said it was better for us. Doesn't that sound awesome? Of course it does. But you might say, Dan, that sounds awesome, but that's not in my experience. And my, my issue with that is maybe there's something you're afraid of. Maybe it's your fear of your reputation. Maybe you think things are going to get too weird. Perhaps you think that following the Holy Spirit is talking as a slippery slope into weirdness. One minute you're raising your hands in worship, the next minute you're so filled with the Spirit that you're barking like a dog in church. Which I am told there are some churches that do that. But let me tell you right away that if you encounter that church, you should run away. Okay? That is not a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. Barking like dogs is not a replacement for, for singing hymns in church. Nor is it something the Holy Spirit would ever make you do. That's not a legitimate thing. But some of you are worried that it just gets into that craziness. And I understand that. Perhaps some of you are worried that he won't come through. I think that some of us think that there's a lot of us who feel like we need to cover for God. And I think that what this means is that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we expect less... And we, we ask less, and because of the, and so that we do, and we're okay with that, because he doesn't, we, we don't have to worry about him failing us. Or perhaps it's the other side. You're afraid that he will come through. And what that means for you. What if God moves you in your life and asks you to go somewhere and do something that's uncomfortable? For many people, it's not fearing that God won't come through. It's the fact that he will, and he will make us go into a difficult or undesirable conversation, and that outweighs the fact that God will ignore them. Here are my closing thoughts on this. Perhaps the issue isn't that you're afraid of it being too weird, or that God won't come through, or that maybe it is. Perhaps the issue is that you're too comfortable, you're comfortable with too little of God in your life. Can you really have too much of Jesus in your life? I don't think so. Maybe you're afraid of having too much of him and what that would entail. Forgiving people, reading your Bible more, putting away your, your fleshly desires. Here's what I'm going to say. Instead of focusing on our fears or of our reputation or whether or not he will or will not show up, let's stop focusing on that and focus on his work. And we submit to what he says in his word about this, and we surrender our fears and ourselves to God through the Holy Spirit. We believe that the fullness of the Holy Spirit comes through uh, faith and obedience. Amen?